how can we envision the sweeping changes to entire landscapes? Ownership of commons, the air, soils, water, biological diversity, back cultural to the diversity is as critical as biological diversity. In this epic struggle to preserve a habitable that is the only thing which is sustained. The place that you love is now under siege. Deregulated commerce is becoming a threat to the life on this planet. These are system problems. Our humanity is We shouldn't state. ask whether we can survive These are existential questions not. as much as they are systemic questions. The Action informed by knowledge of place. You're listening to the Schumacher Lectures, a channel hosted by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. The Schumacher Lectures feature speakers who challenge entrenched ways of thinking while exploring how to build a new economy that serves both people and the planet. Any public program to preserve land or produce food is hopeless if it does not tend to right the balance between numbers of people and acres of land and to encourage long-term stable connections between families and small farms. Juliette Shore delivered her speech, The New Economics of Plentitude, in November 2011. Let's have a look at it a great pleasure and a very distinct honor to be here. Uh, I have been uh, long a fan of the Schumacher Institute, of the incredible work um, that has been done over the last 30 years um, in in Western Massachusetts, um, a place that's very dear to my heart and a former home. Um, And I'm so excited about the transformation into the New Economics Institute. So I'm, I'm really extremely pleased to be here today and should also say that there is no one in the world of political economy and new economics that, uh, who I respect more than Gar Alperbit. So I'm really honored to be sharing this uh, podium with him. So um, the first thing I want to say is, wow. Who would have predicted Six months ago, when this day was planned, a worldwide movement against the tyranny of finance, against captured government, corruption in the boardroom, the Koch brothers and their lackeys, and most evocatively, the split between the one and the 99. This week, 70 students walked out of my former colleague Greg Mankiw's introductory economics course, EC10 at Harvard, complaining that it is biased more an indoctrination than a genuine learning experience. What a difference an occupation makes. Back in April, when when I was uh, invited here, one would have been rightly pessimistic and perplexed about the economic conversation. The Republicans had recently taken over the Congress and politics was getting even uglier than usual. The unemployed were painted as parasites, unwilling to do an honest day's work. The EPA was identified as the cause of economic stagnation. Scott Walker, John Kasich, and Rick Snyder had unleashed shock doctrine on their citizens and their unions. Deficit talk was heating up, and before long, uh, we were into the debacle of the summer standoff on the debt ceiling. 
the shift to the right felt as inexorable as it felt insane. But if the history of economic discourse in times of distress teaches us anything, it is how volatile the conversation can be. The first six months after the collapse of 2008 was another lesson in changeability. $50 trillion in wealth had just disappeared literally overnight, and the orthodox model of rational and quote-unquote free markets was facing its most serious crisis of credibility since the 1930s. The system had failed, and spectacularly so. We were discussing the need to nationalize the too-big-to-fail banks. We were talking about massive infusions of public monies to stabilize output. The environmental movement was winning billions in subsidies for clean energy and green jobs. Within six months of the crash, only 53% of American adults would agree that, quote, capitalism is a better system than socialism. 20% preferred socialism, by which I think they mean Western Europe, and 27% were not sure. Adults under 30 were evenly divided between capitalism and socialism as their preference. But as conditions stabilized, the status quo reasserted itself quickly, and the window that had let in the breath of fresh air slammed shut. And so today's gathering to honor the father of new economics, Fritz Schumacher, is particularly apt for our ability to make gains during the opening that the Occupy movement has created, as well as future openings, will depend critically on articulating an alternative to the business-as-usual economy. And I believe that Schumacher's vision, in broad outlines, if not its details, offers our best possible guide. I will only briefly review the situation in which we find ourselves, for its contours are well known to this audience. First, global capitalism in much of the global north has become grossly dysfunctional. Income and wealth are concentrated not just at the very top, but the very, very, very top. Finance runs amok, unemployment has collapsed, particularly in the U.S. Elites are abandoning the national economy. In 2010, U.S. corporations created 2.5 million jobs but 1.5 million of them were outside the borders. The housing and labor markets are in a deflationary embrace, each contributing to the other's woes. Without a major shift in either policy or practice, i.e., if we continue with BAU, business as usual, the U.S. is likely facing years of stagnation, high unemployment, worsening inequality, and rising poverty. One reason is that the engine of recovery for the past three decades, the consumer, is no longer capable or willing to play this role. Consumers have responded to the downturn by making major adjustments in their attitudes to spending, debt, and lifestyle. They've had, quote, goodbye homo economicus epiphanies. They articulate a shift from a spending culture of me to a culture of we, from status-oriented purchases to re-engaging with the differences between needs and wants, a, a, a distinction that all but collapsed in the uh, spending binge coming up to the crash. 
They're saving more, spending less, and saying that the American way of life is not sustainable, either financially or ecologically. The standard progressive response in such a situation is Keynesian. Prime the pump with government spending to spur demand and create jobs. The faster, the better. While this approach is hardly popular among elites, its opponents are mainly wrong-headed antagonists of deficit spending. But there's another more powerful critique of Keynesianism from the left, which is that it, like macroeconomics in general, is wrong to advocate indiscriminate outlays. Keynes's famous example of burying bottles with banknotes and paying people to dig them out as a way of priming the pump shows the absurdity of spending for spending's sake. Of course, Keynes did not advocate bottle burying, but that's effectively what we're doing, with the largest of those bottles being missiles and bombs, i.e. military spending, which is not only wasteful but deeply destructive. And um, pay attention in the next uh, month or so, it, it's already begun, but the drumbeat of support for uh, military spending as a Keynesian pump primer has begun to escalate, and we're going to hear a lot more of it with the deficit uh, commission the conversation. At a time when we have multiple urgent human and ecological needs, we should not be wasting resources, even idled ones, on activities that fail to enhance human and planetary well-being in significant ways, um, as, for example, road building. This bankruptcy of macroeconomics, I believe, is well appreciated by the public with whom the progressive Keynesian message has absolutely failed to resonate. New Deal 2.0, favored by many of my good friends and progressive economists, feels anachronistic. While Keynesianism is certainly better than neoliberalism, it's a far cry from the new economics. One reason is that it fails to address the unequal distribution of property. Concentrated property not only produces unfair distributions of income, but yields captured government. As we radical economists of the 1960s and 70s stressed, we need not just a democratic political system, but a democratic economy. The fact that we have neither is at the core of our contemporary dysfunction. Anticipating that Gar will be speaking on this issue in his remarks, I'm going to move on to the second major challenge facing the new economy. As is well known in this room, humans are currently on a dangerous, indeed a terrifying path of climate destabilization, ecosystem derangement, and biodiversity collapse. We are facing a future of food shortages, water scarcities, and extreme weather. Reversing our current course is an imperative and monumental task made harder by the likely rise of population from the 7 billion realized this week to 9 billion, with most of that increase in the global south. One hopes that these additional two billion will be consuming energy, food, and manufactured goods at higher rates than their national counterparts, also majorities of whom are poor in many countries. 
But, and with over a billion people currently inadequately fed and more than half the global population living at $2.50 a day or less, the solutions put forward by new economics must be compatible with considerable increases in the ecological space afforded to the low-income populations of the South. And yet we're already in ecological overshoot. The current situation makes it even more difficult to solve that problem, which in itself, you know, without any other context, that in itself is a monumental task. But the, uh, eco the current economic situation makes it much more difficult to move forward on the ecological front. Historically, environmental legislation has been understood as a, quote, luxury good. The economic downturn has already impeded progress on a climate agreement. But we do not have the luxury of waiting for people to feel rich again, because that's unlikely to happen anytime soon in this country and in Western Europe. The global community requires then what we might call a trifecta that dramatically reduces eco and carbon footprints while solving the economic problems of the North and raising the standard of living of people in the global south. Reduce eco-impact, expand consumption for billions of people, solve our own economic distresses. These three issues are linked in a number of ways. Perhaps the most important is that the conventional solution to the latter two, stagnation and inequality in the north, global poverty in the south, uh, the conventional solution to those exacerbates the first, namely eco, ecological overshoot, climate destabilization. Unemployment and poverty are typically addressed by raising the aggregate rate of growth of the economy. But growth is at the core of ecological degradation. Indeed, the only countries who have managed serious decarbonization are those of the Soviet bloc whose economies collapsed in the 1990s. No other economies have, have managed, of any size, have managed to uh, decarbonize, absolute decarbonization. And the very recent news that over the last couple of years in the United States, we have achieved a 7% reduction in overall greenhouse gas emissions um, is another piece of evidence for the view that reducing growth is really, a, the, the rate of growth of the economy is essential to uh, solving carbon reduction in the global north. Now, the need to solve three problems simultaneously opens up a space for new economics because in, typically a, 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 um, when you are faced with a multitude of, of problems which typically are solved in contradictory ways, staying within the current system fails to do it because the system is set up so that each of these are, a, in some sense, a trade-off of the other. Um, and these are the moments when uh, new arrangements, new economic relationships, new policies, new ways of doing things, new cultures, and so forth, um, come, become necessary and people come to understand that they are necessary. 
In the remainder of my remarks today, I will sketch out an alternative path for the global north that will reduce unemployment and ecological footprints without raising the rate of output growth. It will also enhance well-being, the quality of daily life, and the health of communities. It is not primarily a technological solution, and that, of course, has been the dominant response on the, um, in the ecological conversation, which is, is a technological conversation. So it is not primarily a technological solution, although green, clean technologies are an important part of it. Its core insight is the need to transform how people spend their time. Altering patterns of time use changes the macroeconomic path of the economy and allows people to transition out of activities that are destructive to their well-being and the planet. I reject the mainstream trade-off assumption that protecting the environment yields an economy that generates less well-being for people. By contrast, I argue for a new way of living that is rich in those elements that will yield true well-being, namely time affluence, higher levels of what I'll call self-providing and self-reliance, and social capital. So what is the new economics? Perhaps it will be useful to begin by contrasting it with two alternative positions, which I will simplistically term optimists and pessimists. And I do that because I want to link a, a couple of different schools of thought into put put them each a uh, couple of different schools of thought into each of these containers. The optimists are most famously represented by mainstream economists who, on the one hand, deny the severity of ecological de degradation as well as the severity of our current economic dysfunction. So they have tended not to see these as significant problems. To the extent that they, there are problems, their view is that markets and technology will be sufficient to achieve the trifecta I noted above. Solve the ecological problem, solve unemployment in the north, solve poverty in the global south. They believe that natural resource productivity will grow, perhaps dramatically, thereby leading to dematerialization, that is a reduction in the amount of materials flow for every dollar of GNP, decarbonization, equivalent concept with energy, reduction in the amount of energy used associated with every dollar of economic output, and increases in wealth. This idea has also been very popular in the design and engineering sector of the sustainability community, and Susan mentioned Amory Lovins, who's probably the most well-known example of this uh, in the United States, uh, where movements such as Factor 4, Factor 10, Cradle to Cradle, Zero Waste, and Biomimicry have proliferated. Those are all essentially movements to dematerialize production. Sociologists who take this view call themselves ecological modernizers, given their belief in a business-led, profit-driven greening that they see as the foundation for the next major growth phase of capitalism. So these three groups all link up, basically arguing that the growth process itself, if we do it right, is what will lead us to uh, an ecological solution. And great along the way, we're also going to get more jobs because as we grow more, we get more jobs. In contrast, of course, to an emerging discourse of uh, critique of growth, which sees it as very much at the core of our problems. Now, um, I'm not going to go into a lengthy discussion about this debate, but I do want to note 
that dematerialization, decarbonization, and the idea of delinking between ecological degradation and output growth, uh, growth in GDP, has not been achieved except at, a, at small scale. So we can see individual companies who've had big uh, dematerialization. We can see some small countries that are making some progress on this. The most successful region in terms of the uh, evidence on dematerialization since 1980, when we first started talking about this, uh, is of course Western Europe, um, who um, ha have had um, on conventional measures fairly modest increases in materials use, uh, fossil fuel use particularly. And as you know, they instituted a lot of measures in the 1970s to reduce fossil fuel use, to increase efficiency and so forth. But once we account for trade flows and the outsourcing of their carbon use uh, through importing a lot of goods that are made in carbon intensive ways in places like China, for example, the record even of Western Europe, which has been the vanguard area of ecological modernization, factor four, et cetera, et cetera, their record is extremely modest and they are still not achieving dematerialization. There is lower material and energy intensity use per dollar of output, but the growth in output has been sufficient to over uh, wipe that out, we would say, um, so that their total materials use remains increasing. In North America, um, we've done very, very poorly, not surprisingly. Materials use rose rapidly after 1980, um, and between 1980 and the mid-2000s, um, total material flows in North America increased by 70%, more than the global average, which is pretty stunning given how rich a region we are and our ability to uh, access new technologies in order to uh, dematerialize. Um, this was largely as a result of expanding fossil fuel consumption and very importantly, large increases in construction materials associated with the housing boom of the later part of that period. On a global scale, materials inflows increases um, were about 45% over this period. So a quite significant increase in the last 25 years. Globally, emissions are still accelerating, materials use continues to rise, and delinking of materials and value, of economic value, dollars, GNP, remains mostly an aspiration. Indeed, the energy intensity of the global economy, that is energy used per dollar of GDP, actually rose in 2010. And that's a you know, very disappointing and stunning um, development for people who believe that dematerialization is the answer. Now, if economists, engineers, eco-modernizers, and sustainability uh, folks have been overly optimistic about our ability to dematerialize, Marxists have been too pessimistic. They believe in a treadmill of production model that says there are inherent dynamics within a market system that make environmental protection almost impossible. And these include the imperative to growth and then the ability of corporations to capture the state to prevent any significant environmental regulation. And I think we wouldn't be forgiven uh, at the current moment for thinking that between these two camps, the eco-Marxists 
have it uh, more right than the neoclassicals. However, the successes of some countries, I mean, we do have small European countries that are going totally to clean energy, and some industries and companies in moving decisively to clean energy and in reducing materials flows shows that extens extensive, meaning increased growth in materials and natural resources, is not a necessary condition for successful business activity or indeed successful national, a successful national economy. A second pessimistic paradigm that is currently the rage, especially in climate circles, is based on neuropsychology. It says that humans are hardwired to avoid responding to risks such as climate change. We can't cope with abstract formulations. We bracket out risk. We can only focus on one problem at a time. I find this position an unfortunate distraction which is at odds with the great variation in responses to ecological threats across countries, times, and cultures. One only needs to look at the British Climate Change Law of 2007, which put in binding targets, 60% reductions in climate change emissions by 2050, German feed-in tariffs, Denmark's windmill sector, the Australian Climate Law of 2011, something good did happen this year, and California's landmark climate change legislation all suggest that humans' abilities to respond to climate change depend much more on political economy than inherent limitations in our thinking. One hardly needs to invoke brain science to explain opposition to climate legislation in the United States. A look at the political influence of the fossil fuel energy sector is quite sufficient. In contrast to both optimists and pessimists, the new economy position is cognizant of the enormity of ecological threats, of uh, failures of social justice, um, but hopeful that motivated humans can confront them. So uh, new economics is in, in the middle between these two positions. It takes the uh, pessimism of the Marxists um, and the optimism of the economists and designers. In the United States, the new economy movement is made up of sustainability activists, ethical or conscious consumers, low-income inner-city residents whose communities have delinked from the formal economy over, have been delinked from the formal economy over decades, the newly unemployed, and young people involved in consumption sharing and a commons philosophy. It includes groups such as pioneers, biological pioneers, transition towns, of course, the Schumacher Institute and local currency efforts, Business Alliance for Local Living Economies, um, urban food growing, and much of the alternative food movement, the do-it-yourself community, and economic justice groups. It also includes a segment of the information technology world which merges sustainability and commitment to open source practices in a movement called the open source hardware movement, the analog to open source software, which is involved in permaculture, construction, energy generation, and small scale manufacturing. There's also a parallel set of activities on the consumption side, and that's one of the areas that I do re research on. These include local and internet-based sharing of toys, clothing, appliances, and other consumer goods swapping, car and ride sharing, 
couch surfing, supper and soup collectives, community gardens, land shares and CSAs, to mention just a few. There is tremendous social innovation around concepts of sharing, commons, barter, informal exchange, neighborhood exchange, reuse and resale. And of course, the Schumacher Institute has been absolutely at the forefront of all of this long, long before uh, the rest of the country uh, jumped on the uh, bandwagon. Prevailing economic conditions, um, by which I mean that people are relative uh, relatively cash poor in comparison to a boom time. Cash poor and time rich because there's lots of unemployment and underemployment. These current economic conditions are conducive to growth in these practices because they tend to be more time consuming than the buy everything new at the mall uh, model of goods procurement. Most share a commitment to local, small scale, low impact production and consumption to expanded motivations for economic activity other than just uh, making money and self-interest, and to enhancing social connection and community. And finally, to, rejection, to a rejection of the dominant consumer culture. Let me turn now to sketch out two key components of how the new economy could function. The first involves a withdrawal of labor from the formal economy, and a resulting decline in average annual hours of work per employee. And you'll see, as I talk about why I think this is so important to actually realize um, these, uh, you know, what are now many wonderful local innovations, and sometimes they're not local if we're talking about things like couch surfing, they're actually global, but uh, individual innovations, how do we build them up scale them up to a, uh, a, a macroeconomy who functions on these principles and whose, whose actual functioning is, is, so, is really significantly different from the current macroeconomic functioning and which solves the three problems that I started with. So number one is a, a withdrawal of labor from the formal economy, declining average annual hours of work. And number two is the expansion of the local economy, and this is the more familiar part of my talk, obviously, here, uh, including both the do-it-yourself production sector and a growth in entrepreneurial activity at the small scale. Now, before the downturn, the United States had been on a trajectory of rising hours with average annual work time per employee increasing 240 hours between 1973 and two. So that's about five additional weeks of work per year on a 40-hour work week. That's per person. On a family basis, the increase was much larger because you also had uh, increases in the average number of earners per family. So there we're talking about three to 500 hours, depending on the form of uh, the ages of the family that we're talking about and so forth. So big increases in work devoted to the market over this period. Longer schedules propelled growth in GDP and also climate emissions and ecological degradation. Overwork created stress, impaired family life, and undermined community, as well as reduced political and civic engagement. And these are all trends that you've you know, heard a lot about over this period because they're some of the, the, the big stories of the U.S. economy over the last 40 years. Many new... By contrast to that story of overwork, 
which was the experience of the um, median American over this period and the average American. Many new economy practitioners have marginal attachments to the formal economy. They may be downshifters, homesteaders, small business people, voluntary simplifiers, early retirees, or late entrants into the labor force. The key point is that they are altering patterns of time use, and in particularly work time, uh, to reduce dependence on formal jobs. Now, a rebalancing between hours of work in and outside the formal sector is necessary for a number of reasons. First, the magnitude of the unemployment challenge in the United States is such that labor market equilibrium cannot be restored solely by aggregate growth in GDP. Um, GDP has become a far less efficient generator of jobs domestically because of outsourcing, because of a he heavy propensity to impo import. So when we spend those stimulus dollars, uh, the leakage to outside the economy is much greater today than it was in the past. And because of labor displacing technical change. And there's a lot of this going on in the economy, and we can expect much more as the possibilities for labor-saving cha technical change from information technologies get diffused to new sectors and in new ways. And that, that potential is absolutely enormous and, of course, creates a tremendous challenge from the point of view of employment. If your productivity growth is increasing that rapidly, how do you maintain full employment? You can't just do it by growth alone. And we've seen that historically. If you look over the, the, um, the period from the last, the last quarter of the 19th century to the last quarter of the 20th century, the, the very high levels of employment that were achieved in virtually all the industrialized countries, in all the industrialized countries, with the exception of the Great Depression period, were achieved by both increasing the size of the economy and reducing average hours of work. Hours of work went from about 3,000 per year uh, to almost uh, half that over that, not quite, but almost half that over that 100-year period. In my view, the jobs crisis developed over a number of years and is deeper and more structural than one might imagine from an analysis that is centered only on the financial sector. And I think this is really important, and it's why just regulating banks or fixing the financial sector is not going to get us uh, back to the unemployment experience that we had before the downturn. The U.S. needs to create 11 million jobs to return to the pre-downturn labor market, a challenge that even an overly optimistic 4% growth rate, a growth rate we will not achieve, um, will not meet. I mean, it will take many, many years, and they're, you know, great calculations. It'll take 25 years at, you know, 3%, etc. Um, just a, a, an absolutely unacceptable level uh, of amount of time that would take to generate that job growth just through output growth. By contrast, restructuring the labor market is key to reducing unemployment. Using short time schedules to avoid additional layoffs, hiring new workers on four-day work weeks, instituting voluntary programs to trade income for time for higher, uh, higher income workers, job sharing, and early retirement rather than the reverse, which is what we're talking about, keep, keeping people in the labor market for more years, 
a crazy conversation at a time of mass unemployment. Um, these are some of the kinds of changes that will yield shorter average hours per employee and per person. Shorter hours of work also reduce the ecological impact of the economy because time-rich households shift to lower impact forms of transport and consumption. New research I have just completed with Jean Rosa and Kyle Knight of Washington State University using combined cross-national, so that's across countries, and over time data. So we have all of the OECD countries from 2000 and, um, excuse me, uh, 1970 uh, to uh, close to the present finds, we find that holding constant a number of other variables, as one always must do in an analysis like this, um, countries with higher working hours have higher ecological footprints and higher carbon footprints. Countries with shorter average hours of work have lower eco footprints and lower carbon footprints. In addition, taking productivity growth in the form of shorter hours rather than more production is a powerful way to reduce eco-impact. So these are the two reasons that shorter hours uh, reduces eco-impact. One is that households switch the way they consume when they are less time-stressed and work fewer hours. And the other is that uh, less of our productivity growth is taken as increases in output. Back to the argument I, I started with. It's important to recognize one aspect of the scenario I'm uh, playing out here, which is that most people are not being asked to give up income they already have unless they prefer to do so. People hate giving up income they have if, they don't, if they're being forced to, and we know that from new surveys of workers who were furloughed, uh, public sector workers who were furloughed after the downturn. Uh, what's mostly going on is that people are starting jobs at lower salaries than they might be if they worked a five-day work week, and it's particularly effective for new entrants into the labor force. Furthermore, if we build in the, the, the principle of using productivity growth to fund reductions in work time rather than bankers' lavish lifestyles, which is where a very large portion of the national productivity growth has been going over the last couple of decades, People will experience steady, that is, stable incomes with rising leisure time. There's now good evidence from the study of happiness that people are far less attracted to income they haven't yet gotten than income they already have, and that for those outside of poverty, additional time off the job yields more well-being than additional income. Now, the second important consequence of shorter hours is that people can use the time freed up from formal jobs to meet needs through self-providing or making and doing, or what's colloquially known as DIY, do-it-yourself. This allows individuals to increase their consumption, reduce dependence on cash income, become more self-reliant, build skills, and exercise creativity. Following the philosopher Frischoff Bergman, I use his term high-tech self-providing for this kind of activity. In the United States, high-tech self-providing has become newly popular, especially since the collapse. And I'm going to talk about why it's high-tech in a minute. Some of these won't sound high-tech to you. Examples include raising food, growing food, raising livestock, chickens, of course, very popular these days, beekeeping, small-scale off-the-grid energy generation, eco-friendly home construction, and the manufacture of clothing, arts, crafts, and small household items. 
What are the economics of this type of small-scale household activity? Now, mainstream economists have traditionally argued that people should specialize in one activity in the market, earn money from that, and purchase what they need and want because they pick the thing that they are best at. That's the theory of comparative advantage, which you've heard about in trade theory, applied on the household level. Thank you, Gary Becker, for giving us that theory. I argue that we have reached a point at which further specialization does not make sense and that a, re a reversal into a diversification of activities and income streams is the smarter way to go for most households. Now, if you happen to be a person like me, who is a tenured professor, i.e. specialized in one thing with no job uncertainty, uh, it's a different story. But if you're like most people in this economy, the labor market has become a more uncertain place, and your likelihood of losing that job or of your pay being reduced or of conditions degraded and so forth is much, much higher now than it was uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, so di diversification then, I argue, is a smart strategy in a period like this. One reason is uncertainty and future catastrophic events. The instability of both the climate and the economy mean that reliance on the market is more risky. Being able to meet one's needs, even in the event, uh, meet one's needs even in the event of market collapse and climate catastrophe is a smart strategy. Doing that on a community level is even smarter than on an individual level, and initiatives such as transition towns are directed to this type of self-reliance. I mean, that, that's just kind of obvious. But in addition to its insurance function, there are other reasons to think that a rebalancing between the market and let's call it the informal sector, this uh, self-providing sector, makes sense. One is that the productivity potential of hours worked outside the market has increased dramatically. This is not your grandmother's DIY. Are you knitting? Yes. So, and I always say, but some of it is your grandmother's DIY. Um, if self-providing meant going back to the technologies and ways of doing things from the 19th century, mainstream economists would be right. And I'll just put in a little aside here about Fritjof Bergman, who is you know, someone I, who has written on this. He's the person I took the term from. Um, he was an assistant professor of philosophy at Princeton and was a great uh, devotee of Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, and, and wanted to replicate what Thoreau had done. And so he moved up. Uh, he got a leave from Princeton. He moved up to southern New Hampshire and endured, uh, moved into a cabin where he was splitting all his own wood, doing everything self-reliant. And it was, a, it was a horrible, horrible cold winter. And it was back-breaking, mind-numbing, just the, you know, a terrible experience for him. And he left before the two years were over. And the lesson that he learned from this is self-providing is great. Let's do it in ways that minimize the use of, of drudge human labor. And that's where the high-tech part of it comes in. This is not advocating going back to winters in New England, uh, chopping your own wood, except for the, the part of your time when you enjoy chopping the wood, which people do. Um, there are, and what 
and then Bergman set out to work on a series of innovations, technical innovations, that would allow people to meet their basic needs with minimal human labor in food, in energy, in transport. And he has wonderful uh, examples of, he's worked with engineers and so forth, designers, to get great examples of this in each of these areas. There are now newly available technologies, knowledges, and web-based innovations that enhance the productivity of labor at a household or community level. And that's the high-tech part of this. Um, living wall gardens, um, hypercars, little micro-generators, etc. We are all aware of these um, new, new innovations in the realm of information, in software, and culture. We know there's a vibrant peer production model that has developed high-value products such as Wikipedia, Linux, Firefox, and other open software, sourceware programs and products through this informal extra-market process. Remember, none of those were developed in the market for profit. Self-production in music, in video, in advertising, and writing has exploded. So it's a whole new area of production online People are learning new skills, they're enjoying the opportunity to be creative, and they're producing real value to be used and shared by others. Now this model is interesting not just for efficiency reasons, because it is built on what I believe will be a foundational characteristic of the new economy, collaboration and cooperation. The peer production model does not rely solely or even mainly on self-interest, at least in any narrow understanding of the word. People are not motivated to contribute to Wikipedia or Linux or Firefox solely or even mainly to make money, and many of them there's no money involved, but they contribute for a variety of reasons, including to feel useful, to build their reputations, to be creative, and to be connected with others. This new production paradigm, which is propelled by other-directed and collaborative activity, the peer, it's called peer production or collaborative production, etc., is outcompeting private initiatives in the world of software and information. And the Department of Defense is using it now to build software. I mean, it's, it's fascinating how widespread it is across the whole uh, information software world. I suspect it will increasingly begin to outdo private production in the offline world as well. Financial self-interest as a sole or even primary motivator of production will increasingly come to be seen as anachronistic and destructive. The rise of the collaborative consumption initiatives I mentioned earlier, are, and that's in the, in the consumer realm where I talked about the couch surfing and the, the food swapping and so forth. These are examples of the expansion of this part of the new economy, of the peer production, the collaboration model, off the, off the internet into uh, the material world. And the high-tech self-providing path extends the model to the production side. So we've got a lot of it on the consumption side and it's just starting on the production side to making food, to building shelter, creating power, making clothing, building small manufactured goods. It's been called the open source hardware movement. The point is that this model first emerged in information technology and culture but is no longer confined to those sectors. What is important about the new self-providing is that it is high productivity because it is knowledge intensive. 
It employs high levels of know-how, mainly in computers and ecology. So in permaculture, we're talking about ecological knowledge. On the software side, we're talking about computer knowledge. In the fab lab technology, we're talking about computer knowledge. And by doing so, it raises the productivity of human labor. So we're back to Bergman's critique. Not the low productivity labor of splitting woods, but the high productivity labor of using small-scale desktop machines to create houses and computers and so forth, the so-called fabrication labs, which are a series of small machines um, that actually make things, prototype machines. Oh, I'm just about to get to that, sorry. Examples include the use of permaculture principles in food provisioning, living wall gardens, something that Bergman did a lot with in um, poor neighborhoods in, in Detroit and New York. They're basically hydroponics that grow stuff without very much work at all. Small-scale energy generation and small-scale machinery found in the so-called fab labs. While some might wonder if Schubacher would have approved of the high-tech aspect of this vision, I believe the answer is yes. After all, his concept was appropriate technology, and the digital revolution has changed what that means in, I believe, exhilarating and liberating ways. But there's another reason Schumacher would be pleased. The model of retrieving labor time from the market and putting it to work in, at the household and community level to self-provide also makes sense because the economics of scale have changed. What computerization and the development of the web have done is to make small-scale production much more efficient, particularly if it is heavily networked. This point is of vital importance. The rise of information technology has transformed micro-enterprise from, from a romantic throwback to a smart 21st century institutional form. Indeed, the massive command and control entities that we call corporations no longer possess the economic advantages they once did. Small companies are where the dynamism and employment growth is located. If we extend that insight farther, we can see that there are new possibilities at the household and local level for engaging in high productivity economic activity. What becomes possible is a synthesis of the pre-modern household form and modern technology. By the former, I refer to, and people hate this term, but it's really historically accurate. I, prefer, I refer to the model of the peasant household a household that did not work for others, had diverse skills, activities and income, diverse skills, activities and income streams, and actively managed risk through that diversity. Now, peasants were poor, and that's why people don't like to think of it, but it's a kind of post-industrial peasant model of, um, of a small enterprise economy. A key aspect of self-providing activities is that they are low footprint and therefore a central contributor to reducing eco-impact. And here we are back to our um, trifecta. Furthermore, as people learn how to make things, they develop skills and affinities for particular activities and products and then turn these into businesses and careers. And we've seen a lot of this happening in this world. Self-providing becomes one mechanism for expanding a sector of green businesses with a variety of ownership forms, cooperatives, partnerships, B Corps, which become the basis of a new sustainable economy. 
High-tech self-providing is a transitional strategy from an, uh, for an exit from the highly destructive capitalist firms that now dominate the economy. Of course, there is a complex, this is a complex process with a difficult politics, and I'm hopeful we'll get to talk about that more during the day. I know Gar will talk about the, the role of the, the state in, in a new economics uh, transition, and that's really uh, central. Um, what I offer here is more just its economic outlines and the first steps of a transition that can get us there. What I find most exciting about it today is that far from being mainly a paper blueprint, it is a living, breathing, expanding, successful movement of people who are forging a new economy from the ground up. And this brings us back to Occupy, which is the latest, most spectacular, and most magnetic example of the new economics we have today. By insisting on deep democracy, ecological practice, and radical egalitarianism, this movement is modeling key features of what the new economy can and I believe will be. It has catapulted us out of the spiral of corruption and despair that has been dragging the country down for the last few years. For this, we are grateful, hopeful, and excited about its role in propelling us forward to the new economy. Thank you. And in any case, it's certainly worth a hell of a try because it's all positive development anyway. To hear more talks like this one and discover more than 30 years of Schumacher lectures, visit centerforneweconomics.org. The Schumacher Center for New Economics Research Library houses the collections of E.F. Schumacher, Robert Swan, and other influential thinkers in the new economy movement. You can strengthen our mission by purchasing a copy of your favorite Schumacher lectures at centerfornewaconomics.org slash order dash pamphlets. Our work is supported by listeners like you. You can donate to our cause at centerfornewaconomics.org slash donate. This library and the Schumacher lectures capture powerful voices for economic reform. Voices with the strength to move and inspire. They frame and inform action, but are not themselves the action. At a time when our earth is in crisis and our communities face complex challenges, we are all charged with creating solutions. The Schumacher Center's applied work seeks to implement the principles described by these speakers within the context of the Berkshire Hills of Massachusetts. This work includes crafting innovative leases that share equity and improvements while holding land in community trust. Building Berkshires, a local currency designed to democratize monetary issue and keep money circulating in the region. And engaging citizens in supporting the development of regionally appropriate businesses, creating local jobs while retaining local ownership and control. You can support our work in a new economy by making a donation at centerfornewaconomics.org slash donate. Or call us at 413 528 1737 to make an appointment to visit our research library and office at 140 Jug End Road, Great Barrington, Massachusetts.